from New York, this is Democracy Now! And when people who espouse white supremacist, anti-Semitic, and bigoted views pick up weapons and use them to kill or to try to kill people because of their faith, our office and our partners in law enforcement will hold them accountable to the fullest extent of the law each and every time. A federal jury is sentenced to death the gunman who killed 11 worshipers at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in the deadliest act of anti-Semitism in U.S. history. We'll speak to Cantor Michael Zussman, co-founder of L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty. Then we'll talk to the head of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which was sued by Elon Musk after the group documented the rise in hate speech on Twitter, now called X, after Musk bought the platform. And then the ACLU of Colorado sued the FBI and the Colorado Springs Police Department for illegally spying on a local activist and a community organizing hub, which was infiltrated by the FBI. If you look at the history of prosecutions in the post-9-11 era, these types of tactics are used far more against left-wing activists and left-wing political groups than they are against right-wing groups. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Authorities have erected metal barricades around the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., ahead of former President Donald Trump's arraignment today on charges he plotted to overturn his 2020 election defeat. Meanwhile, special counsel Jack Smith, who's leading federal investigations into Trump, has requested a hearing with a federal judge in Miami to determine whether a lawyer representing Trump's co-defendant in the classified documents case has a conflict of interest. Federal prosecutors are questioning whether the attorney, Stanley Woodward Jr., can continue to represent Trump's body man, Walt Nauta, while simultaneously representing three witnesses who might be called to testify against Nauta. In Pennsylvania, a federal jury has unanimously sentenced the gunman who killed 11 worshipers at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue to death. Robert Bowers was found guilty of federal hate crimes for the 2018 massacre. Many survivors and family members gathered to express their relief over the death sentence. But Rabbi Jonathan Perlman, who helped hide worshipers during the gunman's rampage, wrote in the Jewish American newspaper The Forward, quote, Vengeance has become a motivating factor for many Jews who hoped the jury would sentence the murderer to death. But despite the horrific nature of his crimes, I do not believe that doing so would bring either justice or peace, the rabbi wrote. We'll have more on the story after headlines, speaking with a cantor. In Memphis, Tennessee, prosecutors have filed attempted murder charges against a man who fired shots outside the Margolin Hebrew Academy School Monday after he tried and failed to enter the building. The gunman left the premises, but police officers later found Joel Alejandro Bowman after identifying his car. They confronted him and shot him, sending him to hospital in critical condition. Memphis Police Chief C.J. Davis says officers averted a potential mass shooting. 
Iran's government ordered a two-day nationwide shutdown amidst an unprecedented heat wave. Iran's state news agency reports about a thousand people have been hospitalized for heat-related ailments in recent days, as temperatures in some cities soared to 50 degrees Celsius or 123 degrees Fahrenheit. In northern China, the death toll from unrelenting rainfall has risen to 20, with more than a million residents of Beijing and other cities forced to evacuate flooding that left widespread damage. Beijing saw more than 29 inches of precipitation between Saturday and Wednesday morning, its heaviest rainfall in at least 140 years. In Japan... The Tokyo Medical Examiner's Office says 73 people died last month of heat-related illnesses, while in South Korea, the government reports at least 23 heat-related deaths since May. This week, hundreds of participants at the 25th World Scout Jamboree have fallen ill from heat exhaustion, with some 400 cases reported on Tuesday evening alone. Meanwhile, South America is experiencing one of the most extreme weather events on record, with temperatures in parts of Chile and Argentina topping 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the dead of winter. Raul Cordero, a climatologist from the University of Santiago, says the unprecedented winter heat could threaten water supplies to major cities in the months ahead. One of the problems of high temperatures during winter is that they quickly melt seasonal snow. In countries like Chile, the provision of water during the dry season, spring and summer, relies on the natural storage that's in the mountain snowpack. It's natural reservoir that provides water to communities in big cities in central Chile. A new report by Climate Central finds global heating made the month of July hotter for more than 80 percent of humanity, more than six and a half billion people. In Niger, the leader of the military junta that deposed President Mohamed Bazoum on July 26 says he'll defy any attempts to restore the former president by force as leaders of the ECOWAS bloc of West African countries threaten military action unless the coup is reversed by August 6. General Abdurrahman Chani made the comments in a nationally televised address Wednesday. Le Conseil national pour la sauvegarde de la patrie. The National Council for Safeguarding the Homeland rejects all sanctions and refuses to yield to any threat, wherever it may come from. We reject any interference in Niger's internal affairs. Major cities across Niger have been experiencing rolling blackouts after Nigeria cut supplies of electricity as part of sanctions imposed on Niger. This week, French soldiers evacuated hundreds of French nationals and other Europeans from Niger. And on Wednesday, the U.S. State Department ordered the evacuation of non-emergency personnel and family members from its embassy in Niger's capital, Niamey. The Biden administration told CNN it has no plans to withdraw some 1,100 U.S. troops in Niger. In Tunisia, President Kais Saied has dismissed the prime minister, appointing former central bank executive Ahmed Al-Chani as a replacement. He faces a spiraling economic crisis and public anger over President Saied's policies and what has been deemed an executive coup. Many Tunisian citizens expressed indifference at the sudden change in leadership. I no longer pay much attention to the change of ministers. Every four or five months, you hear about a new minister and an outgoing minister, and their appointments announced on a Facebook page. In Brazil, at least 45 people have been killed in police raids targeting gangs over the past week in Sao Paulo State. Police killed 16 people during a five-day raid in what appears to be retaliation following the fatal shooting of an officer. Protesters took to the streets after the deadly raid in the coastal city of Guarujá. 
we want to tell our public servant, Governor Tarcicio de Freitas, that he is violating our Constitution. The fifth article, which is about the right to life, the inviolable right to housing, is being broken into. We want to tell our public servant that we do not accept paying for the bullet that kills our children. Sao Paulo's right-wing Governor Tarcicio de Freitas is a close ally of the former President Jair Bolsonaro and has been cast as a likely contender to run for the presidency after Bolsonaro was barred from holding office until 2030. Mexican authorities say they're working to identify a body found trapped in the floating barrier of buoys installed by Texas in the Rio Grande. The U.S. Justice Department has sued Texas over Governor Greg Abbott's floating barrier, while Mexico says it violates a water treaty and could encroach on its territory. This comes as the Houston Chronicle reports Texas troopers have been separating migrant families who enter the U.S. by detaining and separating fathers on trespassing charges and an apparent violation of guidelines issued in 2021. Meanwhile, a new report by two advocacy groups reveals workers at the Department of Homeland Security regularly abuse migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border with impunity, citing, quote, the misuse of lethal force, intimidation, sexual harassment and falsifying documents, unquote. The Fitch Ratings Credit Rating Agency has downgraded the U.S. government's long-term debt from AAA status to the lesser AA-plus rating. The move could make it harder for the Treasury to attract investors in U.S. government bonds. On Wednesday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen blasted the decision as entirely unwarranted. At the end of the day, Fitch's decision does not change what all of us already know. The Treasury securities remain the world's preeminent safe and liquid asset, and that the American economy is fundamentally strong. In downgrading the U.S. credit rating, Fitch and analysts cited a, quote, steady deterioration in standards of governance over the last 20 years, unquote. This follows drawn-out negotiations between the White House and Republican leaders over the debt ceiling, which narrowly averted a default on the nation's debt in June. And Pope Francis met Wednesday with survivors of sexual abuse by clergy during a trip to Lisbon, Portugal. The visit comes in the wake of a report which found priests and other church officials in Portugal likely abused 5,000 children or more since 1950. Pope Francis also called out Portugal's Catholic leaders for their inaction and dismissal of the survivors and said the church needed purification from a string of child abuse scandals. They call for a humble and constant purification, starting from the cry of pain of the victims, always to welcome and listen. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The man who carried out the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history has been sentenced to death by a federal jury. On Wednesday, jurors unanimously sentenced Robert Bowers to death for killing 11 worshipers at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. Bowers was found guilty of federal hate crimes for the 2018 massacre. The worshippers had gathered on a Saturday morning for Shabbat services when Bowers entered the synagogue armed with an AR-15 and three handguns. He yelled, all Jews must die as he opened fire. When he was finally taken into custody 20 minutes later, he reportedly told a SWAT team officer he, quote, wanted all Jews to die. Before the attack, Bowers posted a link on social media to the website of Hayas, a Jewish nonprofit that was planning a Shabbat ceremony for refugees across the country. He wrote, quote, 
Why, hello there, Hyas. You like to bring in hostile invaders to dwell among us? Then hours before his attack on the Tree of Life synagogue, he posted, quote, Hyas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in, he said. This death penalty sentence for Bowers is the first for federal prosecutors in the Biden administration, which has imposed a moratorium on executions. This is U.S. Attorney Eric Olshan. The evidence in this trial proved that the defendant acted because of white supremacist, anti-Semitic and bigoted views that unfortunately are not original or unique to him. Sadly, they are too common. Our Constitution protects a person's right to hold repugnant beliefs. But our Constitution also protects every person's right to practice his or her faith. And when people who espouse white supremacist, anti-Semitic, and bigoted views pick up weapons and use them to kill or to try to kill people because of their faith, our office and our partners in law enforcement will hold them accountable to the fullest extent of the law each and every time. Today, the families of victims in the Pittsburgh synagogue mass shooting are sharing their impact statements before Bowers is formally sentenced to death. On Wednesday, victims, family members and survivors of the shooting responded to the jury's decision. And for the final verdict in this case, I feel relief. And the jury sat through months of horror and delivered justice to my mom and everyone that was killed and everyone injured and everyone beyond. Finally, justice has been served, and even though nothing will bring my dad back, I feel like a weight has been lifted, and I can breathe a sigh of relief. This trial is important in enforcing the law of the land. It is also important in sending a signal in the strongest possible terms that anti-Semitism and hate have no place in our hearts no place in our communities, no place in our country, and will not be tolerated. Rabbi Jonathan Perlman, who helped hide worshipers during the gunman's rampage, wrote an op-ed in the Forward, headlined, Killing the Shooter Won't Bring My Slain Congregants Back. The rabbi writes, quote, Vengeance has become a motivating factor for many Jews who hoped the jury would sentence the murderer to death. But despite the horrific nature of his crimes, I do not believe that doing so would bring either justice or peace, the rabbi wrote. Robert Bowers would have been sentenced to life in prison without parole if the jury's decision was not unanimous. In death penalty trials, potential jurors must confirm to prosecutors that they're willing to impose the death penalty as part of a jury selection process called death qualification. For more, we're joined by Cantor Michael Zusman, a former prison chaplain and co-founder of L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty. Cantor, welcome to Democracy Now! It's so important to have you with us today. Um, if you could start off by talk—responding to what we heard in the televised media uh, yesterday, family member after family member expressing their grief, but also their relief at the um, unanimous decision to sentence Bowers, the uh, murderer, to death. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and I'm sorry it's in these circumstances. First and foremost, let it be known that there is no judgment. I work as a hospital chaplain and a hospice chaplain with people who are dying and their family members. And as I tell the family members, they can and should feel however they feel as they process the grief. Far be it from me to ever know the pain that they must be going through. No one should ever experience that pain. And if it were me experiencing that pain, I indeed might be before you advocating for a death penalty. As it is, I am not. I am part of our society. And I am of the belief, as are the thousands of members of our group, L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty, that it is the law that is wrong. Indeed, a heinous crime, the likes of which was committed in Pittsburgh, should be punished to the full extent of the law. But the law is wrong. We know that the death penalty condemns the society that enacts it infinitely more than any human being that it condemns to death. And I know that from personal experience and from the experience of my people. Could you elaborate, uh, Cantor, on, on what you mean by that, that you know that from your personal experience and also the experience of your people? Certainly. Well, it was something that I learned throughout my life, but the main experience was my, my experience as a prison chaplain. Working in Canada as a prison chaplain where the death penalty was not on the books, and meeting and getting to know individuals who would have qualified for the death penalty in other states in the United States, and perhaps federally, and seeing how they changed. Experiencing that began to change my heart from someone who, growing up, believed in the death penalty, to thinking again about it. And then, when I came to learn more about it, and to see how hard the Jewish tradition made it to enact the death penalty, and to see how horrifically applied it is in a racist and fundamentally unjust manner, I began to see how wrong it was. But it wasn't until I started corresponding with people regularly over letter and nowadays over email daily with people in line for execution that I witnessed firsthand the psychological torture that's inherent in any death penalty. Physical torture often, yes. I've had many experiences with pen pals who have undergone that. But psychological torture, always, including the extent of sane, otherwise sane individuals who have tried to kill themselves as the days and weeks counted down. It is something that no society should ever be a part of. That's my personal experience. I can also speak to it from the experience of, of my people as I see it. When it comes to that, I look to Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor and death penalty abolitionist, who said, the, he said famously that death should be never the answer in a civilized society. 
and individuals like him, Martin Buber, Gershom Shalom, Jewish scholars, knew that even someone like Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi perpetrator, should not have been executed by Israel. Martin Buber famously called it the great mistake. When I consider the method that Robert Bowers will now be put to death, it's even more clear-cut. Lethal injection was first implemented in our world by the Nazis as part of Achtung T4. That is the protocol used to kill people deemed unworthy of life. The protocol was devised by Dr. Karl Brandt, the personal physician of Adolf Hitler. Every use of lethal injection carries on that Nazi legacy. The members of L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty, know this viscerally. Many of us, like myself, are direct scions of Holocaust survivors. We know, we know that the death penalty is not the same as the unparalleled conflagration that was the Shoah. However, we also know that for never again to have any meaning, it must also mean never again to state-sponsored murder of defenseless prisoners who are otherwise no longer a threat, safely behind bars. This is a lesson that 21st century Judaism should share with the world. Traditional Judaism does have a place for the death penalty, albeit with prodigious safeguards to prevent anyone who is innocent from being executed. And they almost made it impossible to carry out an execution. Famously, they say that once in 70 years, if a court were to to put somebody to death, uh, that would be a hanging court. There is then a retort saying, but what about increasing the number of murderers in Israel if you were to do that, implying the notion of deterrence? We can forgive the ancient rabbis of blessed memory for not knowing that deterrence is a fallacy. It is disproven time and again by meta-studies. And so there is no reason for this excessive violence which carries on this Nazi legacy. And let me add one more thing. In various states now, we are seeing gas chambers being erected. In one state, Arizona, Zyklon B is offered. Zyklon B was the gas used in Auschwitz. These are facts that I'm not making up. These are, these are facts that are real. And we cannot forget the past. And that is why I say that the death penalty condemns the society that, enact, that, it, that enacts it infinitely more than any individual that it condemns to death. So, Kanta Zussman, you mentioned uh, the case, of course, of uh, uh, Adolf Eichmann, uh, and you said that Martin Buber, a uh, very famous uh, Jewish philosopher, uh, condemned the decision by Israel to execute him, uh, calling it a great mistake. Eichmann, of course, during his, the trial, attempted to disavow his responsibility or minimally to diminish the role that he played in the Holocaust. Uh, so I want to ask you about um, the intention and the response of the perpetrator 
in uh, attacks of this kind, what happened at the Tree of Life, because what people have pointed out, uh, what's uh, shocking is that Bowers, uh, rather than uh, express any guilt at all, on the contrary, said that he should have been better prepared, had more ammunition so he could kill uh, more Jews, etc. So to what extent should that be taken into account, if at all? I think it should absolutely be taken into account, again, to the fullest extent of the law, to reflect the absolutely heinous and horrific nature of it. The problem, again, is not that we did not punish him to the full extent of the law. The problem is that the law is wrong in offering this inhumane punishment, which 70 percent of nations in the world, 70 percent, have recognized as a violation of human rights, including Ghana, the country of Ghana, which just this past week abolished the death penalty while this trial was going on. And while this trial, while this, uh, this verdict came out this week in the United States, we have two executions, one of a mentally ill man on Monday, on Tuesday, and another today of a quote-unquote volunteer for state-assisted suicide in Florida, a prisoner who has dropped all his appeals. So when you open that door to, to death, that is opening Pandora's box to something that we know is a violation of the highest order of human rights. And it opens the door to proposals that we see in the states here for the death penalty now for abortion and, and countries like Uganda that are now uh, have the quote unquote kill the gays law, the death penalty for uh, uh, homosexual acts. And it goes on and on. Florida, we see this Pandora's box opening now for the death penalty for crimes that don't involve killing and um, for the death penalty when there's a non-unanimous jury. So what we're seeing is again and again how when that door is left open, horrors emanate from it. Cantor Zussman, I wanted to go to uh, Democratic Congressmember Jamie Raskin, who shared his response to the uh, death sentence given to Bowers in an interview with the BBC. I have opposed the death penalty for a long time, and I led the fight in Maryland to abolish the death penalty. You know, I, I think that the punishment of death is certainly way too good for the mass murderer, this racist anti-Semite who assassinated worshippers at the Tree of Life synagogue. And, you know, he should be forced to endure his days with the rigors of a hard time in prison. And he should be an example to others. You know, a lot of these people who engage in these uh, massacres at churches, supermarkets, Walmarts, what have you, turn the gun on themselves and kill themselves. They don't want to face a guilty verdict and life in prison. I wanted to ask you, Cantor Zussman, people may not be aware that in death penalty cases, something we pointed out at the beginning, um, the, the prospective jurors have to be for the death penalty, even if in the end they don't give the death penalty to the person. That often excludes um, blacks, Jews and Catholics who are more often than not against the death penalty. So then they won't serve on jurors in a case that doesn't even necessarily go for the death penalty. And it also shows that those jurors would be uh, 
less likely to convict those that would be kept off the jury. Your thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely spot on. Uh, I saw a comment just recently that somebody made, an astute comment, that hypothetically, if all the members of the jury were, were Jewish, it's highly unlikely that we would see this penalty of death. And that would reflect the cross-section of the Jewish community when it comes to views on the death penalty. Let it be known that, indeed, there are many in the Jewish community, as, you, as you've mentioned before, who do support the death penalty. Uh, there's, there's a famous quip that two Jews, three opinions, and we are allowed to agree to disagree. In the Talmud, there's a famous phrase, teku, which comes from the Aramaic tekum, which means let it stand. It's okay, we will agree for the sake of heaven to disagree on this issue. And that's fine. Let there begin a group that says Jews for the death penalty, lamavet, which means to death. Ours is lechaim, to life, Jews against the death penalty. And so, that would, to me, say that if there were jurors who were selected, you would at least get at least one, if not many more, who would have recognized that the death penalty is an abomination and would have not have voted for it for Robert Bowers. Cantor Michael Zisman, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, usually we go to a recorded music break, but we're wondering if you could be that for us today. Um, we're trying something new. If you could take out this segment with a memorial prayer um, as the uh, all the country looks at Pittsburgh and the greatest anti-Semitic act in U.S. history. Cantor Michael Zussman, let me say, is a former prison chaplain and co-founder of L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty. I certainly can do so. This is the traditional Jewish prayer for mourning, the El Malay Rachamim, and it will be in the Hebrew. Well, it looks like we, it looks like we <clears throat> uh, lost the canter. Um, we'll do that another day. Uh, but I think we'll go out with Paul Robeson. This is Democracy Now! Mein Kind, performed by Paul Robeson. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. 
Hate speech, racism and lies soared on the website formerly known as Twitter after it was taken over by billionaire Elon Musk last year. That's according to the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Musk has responded to the findings by filing a lawsuit against the center over the research. Elon Musk recently changed the name of Twitter to the letter X accuses the British watchdog group of unlawfully accessing data to, quote, falsely claim it had statistical support showing the platform is overwhelmed with harmful content. Twitter gives its Twitter Blue subscribers who pay to use the platform prioritized rankings and conversations in search. The Center for Countering Digital Hate looked at 100 different paid Twitter Blue accounts and found the company failed to act on 99 percent of hate posts they made. This comes as Musk has laid off about 80 percent of the ex-workforce, including a large number of content moderators, and shut down its Trust and Safety Council. Meanwhile, Musk, who calls himself a free speech absolutist, has reinstated the accounts of numerous white supremacists, bigots and conspiracy theorists. Last week, he reinstated rapper Kanye West, now known as Ye, who was removed for a series of anti-Semitic rants. For more, we're joined by two guests. Nora Benavides is senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. And Imran Ahmed is CEO for the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which Musk is suing. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Imran, we're going to begin with you, as Musk is suing you. Can you explain what you found and then your response to the lawsuit? Well, thank you for having me on. Um, and just to clarify, we're not a British uh, watchdog. We're a US 501c3 headquartered in Washington, D.C. We do have a British office as well. Um, and clearly, I'm British. Um, the work that we've done since the takeover by Elon Musk is to look at what happened when he took over. So what were the changes in the scale of hate and disinformation on his platform? And also their moderation of that hate and disinformation. All platforms have community standards. The question is that those standards, which are our responsibilities as users, um, and also therefore a reciprocal right that we expect others to abide by them as well, and for the platform to enforce those rules, how effectively are they being enforced? Our first piece of work that you mentioned there was one that looked at the, the increase in the use of hate speech on that platform, so specifically at um, racial slurs. And what we found is a substantial increase in the use of uh, hate speech on that platform in the weeks and months uh, following uh, Mr. Musk take over. There's other research that we've done to test their moderation capabilities. What we've done is we've literally gone out and asked, we've reported hate on the platform, extreme hate, like you know, the sort of stuff saying, go out and shoot gay people, uh, or the kind of, you know, really, really uh, appalling and abominable anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that were being, that you were just referencing in the most recent package that you had on. Um, and then we went back and we audited what action they took. Now, with Twitter Blue users, 99 times out of 100, they took no action on extreme hate. And why? Because, I mean, you know, one can theorize very simply that that's because for these $100 a year accounts, these $8 a month accounts, that they're simply not willing to enforce the rules on them for fear of losing that revenue stream. It just shows that under Mr. Musk, the platform has become a more toxic, it's got more disinformation, more hatred on there. And nine months after our initial piece of research, he sued us about it. Hmm. 
And Imran, uh, I want to ask you about the piece that you wrote for MSNBC, uh, headlined X misses the mark in threatening to sue my group for documenting online hate speech. In the article, you speak specifically about the case of the artist formerly known as Kanye West, who now goes by uh, uh, Ye, I guess, Y-E. He'd been taken off the platform, but has since very recently returned. Explain uh, what, why he was deplatformed and, and then why he's returned. Well, he was deplatformed for extreme anti-Semitic um, content that he posted. Um, and of course, we, you know, there's been a lot of coverage about his particular opinions on Jewish people and his uh, praise for Hitler, etc. Um, but, but why he was let back on is part of a wave of the replatforming of giving back accounts to people who'd been uh, kicked off by either the old administration or the current administration, which, of course, does enforce it rules, its rules sometimes. Because, frankly, controversy, you know, drives attention. I mean, Musk has said many times that Twitter will survive if, it's, if, it, if people are paying attention to what's happening on there. And the best way to do that is stuff that really raises our ire in his view. So things, hate, disinformation, stuff that makes us go, that's unacceptable. Get into arguments with people. Go back and check whether or not people agree with us or someone else. Really, he's looking for eyeballs. And he's willing to use extreme controversy, even that the algorithms, of course, funnel the fringes, funnel the the most controversial content, the most engaged with content into more timelines. So he's turning it into a sort of a nonstop car crash with the hope of getting eyeballs so he can place ads on those on, on, on that content. And that is really the business model. It's incredibly cynical. The problem for him is advertisers don't want their content next to that. Mm. And he's lost tens of millions of dollars as a result. Now, that's what he's put in his lawsuit against us. And he's blaming us directly for having uh, caused the loss of those hundreds of millions of dollars, those tens of millions of dollars, um, because we documented the hate on the platform. You know, my contention is all we do is hold up a mirror to Mr. Musk and say, do you like the reflection you see in there? And rather than do what anyone responsible would do, which is say, there's a problem, I need to fix that, this is mine, he said, I'm going to sue the mirror. Well, Imran, I mean, you've said, of course, and he has, uh, uh, Musk and Twitter have lost tens of millions of dollars since he took charge. But uh, despite that, or or maybe because of it, uh, Musk says that he wants to change, expand the platform now called X into an everyday app uh, akin to China's WeChat, which includes not just messaging, but also uh, or posting, but also messaging, payments, videos, uh, uh, and other forms of, of media and exchange. If you could uh, uh, comment on that. You know, if Mr. Musk has plans to expand his business, I wish him the luck. I wish him all luck with it. I have no problem with him making money. I have no problem with people doing business. What I have a problem with is that when there is hate and disinformation being algorithmically amplified into billions of timelines, it's perfectly right that people that oppose the spread, the production and distribution of hate, seek to research it and seek to put that out into the public sphere. That is, after all, our First Amendment right to do so. 
And Mr. Musk's attempt to strategically litigate to stop us from publicly participating, so a slap suit, you know, that is really a, it's incredibly cynical coming from someone who purports to be very pro-speech. And to do so by going after civil society, look, you've got Nora on as well, who's, a, you know, a friend and our organizations and many others do research on these platforms, do advocate for uh, better experiences for users on those platforms with less hate and disinformation. And, um, and of course, because of the, of the huge human rights and civil rights implications of the spread of hate and disinformation, I don't want to make the, 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 the obvious connection to what we saw in Pittsburgh or what we saw in Colorado Springs, but, the, you know, there is... The, there is there is, a f there is a very strong public interest reason to expose what happens on these platforms. And it is vital, therefore, that CCDH resist this lawsuit. He's trying to crush a small organization. I mean, he is the world's richest man. We are an organization that's relatively small. We're a 501c3. We rely entirely on public donations. And we're going to have to make sure that we don't allow him to that we don't allow this litigation to succeed, because if it does, it will have a broader chilling effect across anyone who wants to comment on the businesses Mr. Musk runs. So Elon Musk calls you a rat, Imran Ahmed, and uh, calls your organization evil. You have a powerful lawyer representing you and Robbie Kaplan, who represents E. Jean Carroll. Um, are you getting increased death threats? Is your organization being threatened? Uh, I mean, if death threats came into the organization, I wouldn't get to see any against me. But I know that, you know, we we are perfectly aware that I have a responsibility to my 20 staff who I care about, who are, you know, who are intelligent, brilliant advocates for our cause. And we do everything that we need to do to make sure that our staff are safe psychologically and physically. What I will say to you is that when a man like that calls you a rat, you know, he's, he knows the language he uses. I mean, he may not be a stable genius, but he is a clever man. And he knows what he's doing when he calls someone evil and a rat. And I'll tell you something. You know, we've pushed back against that. The, 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 the amazing thing for me, and I'm, I'm not someone that is particularly needy of praise or affirmation, but so many people, you know, from the actor Mark Ruffalo through to all of our colleagues in civil society, through to politicians have stood up and said, absolutely, this is outrageous. Because this is a group that set up, I set it up because my colleague Joe Cox MP, a 35-year-old mother of two, was assassinated by a far-right terrorist who believed in the Great Replacement Theory in Britain seven years ago. And I knew that social media and the way that social media platforms were allowing and accelerating the distribution of conspiracy theories that led to my colleague's death you know, had a responsibility, and I wanted to make sure that they recognized that responsibility. I, 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 I think the, the, the irony of this entire situation is that in an attempt to shut down transparency on his platform and accountability, what Mr. Musk has done is created a unimpeachable case and a cacophony of support for federal transparency and accountability legislation in the United States. It's unacceptable that in the European Union with the Digital Services Act in the United Kingdom with the Online Services Bill, that there is absolutely nothing in the US to ensure that researchers have access to information on these platforms that we know have you know, massive impact on individual psychology. We do a lot of work on the impact on kids as well. It's 
bad, you know, and on our democracy. It's unacceptable that they can op- uh, operate in such a opaque and unaccountable way. And of course, I think that by winning this case and by defending this case vigorously, we will create that broader case for federal transparency and accountability legislation. I want to bring Nora Benavides into this conversation and to talk about uh, Twitter, now known as X, internationally. Um, uh, can you talk about its record in censoring ethnic minorities in India and dissidents in Turkey, working with China to censor critics? Elon Musk claims that Twitter's predecessors did the same thing. Is that true? Sure. Well, Amy, it's wonderful to be here with you, and it's wonderful to be here with Imran as well, hearing this story and and working closely with the center. It's been uh, an incredible journey watching, and I think the only response when uh, we get attacked by bullies is to stand up and to uh, come together. So I look at this long track record that Elon Musk has when it comes to silencing critics. That's his go-to tactic to evade accountability. He has done that over and over again. Uh, He did it even before he took over Twitter. Uh, Back when he was running Tesla, he had a long track record of silencing people. He fired employees who spoke about malfunctions with their cars. He colluded with and partnered with the Chinese government to make sure that any malfunctions at all on listservs would be minimized. And that kind of bad behavior, that silencing of critics has transferred to Twitter or X. And now we've really seen eight or so months of just a long track record of Elon Musk going after anyone who tries to be critical of something he doesn't like. Uh, And so, as you say, he has a global track record of this. Uh, There was a BBC documentary which explored the targeting by the Indian government of the Muslim minority population. And what he did was he systematically worked with uh, the Modi government to make sure that posts about that BBC documentary that supported it, that applauded the kind of attention that needed to come to that issue in India was suppressed, minimized and down downgraded on the platform. He has other examples, of course, um, where he sort of cherry picks content. When he doesn't like what someone is saying, he uses the biggest platform in the world to make sure that people don't see it. He removes journalists when he doesn't like what they are saying or the way that they are covering him. Uh, He makes sure that competition uh, with Twitter is also minimized. This is sort of, a, as Imran said, a cacophony. And the chaos that Elon Musk has created means that it's hard for us to track it unless we have the researchers in place, the kinds of tools and the transparency that shine a light on what's really happening in a company that Elon Musk has done everything to uh, hide from us, to evade accountability. Nora Benavides, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press, and Imran Ahmed, CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Next up, we're going to Colorado. The ACLU there has sued the FBI and the Colorado Springs Police Department for illegally spying on a local activist and infiltrating a community organizing hub. We'll speak to that activist and find out what happens. Stay with us. Amen. <laughs> 
That's our first guest on Democracy Now! today, Cantor Michael Zusman's reciting the traditional Jewish memorial prayer for the 11 Tree of Life victims in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. The American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado has sued the FBI, the Colorado Springs Police Department, and local officers for illegally spying on a local activist in a community organizing hub in Colorado Springs. The lawsuit accuses the agencies of, quote, unconstitutional and invasive search and seizure of the phones, computers, devices, and private chats of people and groups whose message the Colorado Springs Police Department dislikes, unquote. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of a local activist and the Chinook Center— a community organizing hub in Colorado Springs. This comes after revelations the FBI had infiltrated the Chinook Center by sending an undercover police detective named April Rogers to volunteer there in 2020. This was part of a broader FBI effort to infiltrate racial justice and uh, left-leaning groups in Colorado after the police killing of George Floyd. The FBI's role in infiltrating protest movements in Colorado was first exposed by the investigative reporter Trevor Aronson, who writes for The Intercept and created the Alphabet Boys podcast. In this clip, Aronson describes what happened when April Rogers was forced to testify in another case. Charles Johnson's lawyer is named Allison Blackwell. She believes the charges against her client are politically motivated. So during a hearing, she calls April Rogers as a witness over the objections of prosecutors who do not want the undercover cop to testify. For the hearing, a lawyer representing the U.S. Department of Justice is sitting at the prosecution's table. When you were marching in the housing march, were you doing that for the Colorado Springs Police Department? I was uh, under the authority of the FBI. Okay. Um, how many other FBI agents were in that march? I respectfully decline to answer. Does the Colorado Springs Police Department know that you're working for the FBI? Yes. So I want to talk about going back to the Chinook Center. Um, did you feel guilty about that? I respectfully decline to answer. April is wearing a black dress with a black face mask to protect her undercover identity. She has long, dark brown hair, but it looks like a wig. A good one, but a wig all the same. On request, while on the witness stand, April pulls down her face mask, but only to her chin. 
Attorney Allison Blackwell asks April question after question. And nearly every time April answers, I respectfully decline to answer. She keeps looking over at the lawyer from the Justice Department. It's a truly bizarre scene, one of the strangest I've ever witnessed in a courtroom. This is a state courthouse. And in this case, the United States government is not a party. And yet, a Justice Department lawyer is instructing a local cop not to answer questions about a criminal case she helped investigate. That's an excerpt from the podcast, The Alphabet Boys, about how the FBI infiltrated activist groups in Colorado Springs. We're joined now by two guests, Jacqueline Armendarez and Zueta, known as Jax. She's in Colorado Springs, a community organizer who's a plaintiff in the new ACLU Colorado lawsuit. Also with us, the award-winning investigative journalist Trevor Aronson, contributing writer to The Intercept and the creator of The Alphabet Boys podcast. His new article's headline, Lawsuit Targets FBI Pro of racial justice act, uh, activists. He's the author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Trevor, um, lay out more fully this case. This undercover cop who was working for the FBI, known to the group in Chinook as—what, um, her name was—they called her Chelsea. She had pink hair. She implied she was a sex worker. Take it from there. Yeah, so the FBI recruited <clears throat> April Rogers, a Colorado Springs detective, to infiltrate the Chinook Center. And she went in as a volunteer. She claimed to be a sex worker. And she was given tasks, administrative tasks in the organization. And for more than a year, she was undercover for the FBI, um, you know, gathering information about members of the Chinook Center, its activities, and then providing that back to the Colorado Springs Police Department and the FBI. She was also attempting unsuccessfully to entrap activists in gun-running conspiracies that the FBI was trying to engineer. And her role appeared to be twofold. One, a blanket surveillance that she was collecting information about activists. And two, that she was trying to entrap some of these activists in crimes, ultimately unsuccessful in the latter effort. But for more than a year, she was undercover gathering information. And this and so was the, what year? The search warrant this started in 2020, in the summer of 2020, and continued through the summer of 2021. So for more than a year, this was a significant time investment by both the FBI and the Colorado Springs Police Department in using an undercover in this capacity. And so the search warrants at question are part of this larger effort by the FBI to basically surveil and investigate the Chinook Center um, under essentially a domestic terrorism investigation. So, Jacqueline, you're one of the plaintiffs in this case. Could you talk about when you found out uh, that there was this FBI informant and what the consequences for you personally have been? Thank you. Yes, that's right. Um, good morning from Colorado Springs. So, you know, this was one of the worst moments of my life. And I only found out the extent of this violation of our constitutional rights when I realized, you know, I demanded to see the search warrant for my home when they came and acted if I was some sort of criminal. Um, then I realized that this was some sort of effort that involved, you know, the Joint Terrorism Task Force with CSPD and 
as I mentioned, I, I'd never been arrested before in my life. I happened to be at the housing march that day because I was actually at the time a U.S. Senate staffer and we were working on a particular project with the housing crisis. So I came to participate because I believe housing is a human right. And I came to observe, do my job, understand what the local community was saying. And I can tell you that I've never been the same since the CSPD decided to violate my constitutional rights, invade my privacy. And let's not forget the real part of um, this story is that CSPD was targeting and retaliating against us. They sent me a very clear message um, to shut down, sit up little girl, know your place. They criminalized our speech, which is that black lives matter, housing is a human right, um, white supremacy is domestic terrorism, and they tried to use that as a basis to criminalize us. And I would just uh, add that really this behavior from CSPD stems um, as far back as 2019, because today is the four-year remembrance of the killing of Devon Bailey, who a CSPD officer shot as he ran away. They shot him in the back and killed him. And our community started organizing to demand accountability from CSPD. And ever since then, we've been a target for CSPD. And this case clearly shows that. So, Jax, can you tell us about what happened to your personal devices, your personal data? Um, how did the authorities take them? Absolutely. So they came to my home to arrest me for a false accusation involving my participation in the march. And I demanded that they show me the search warrant. And it was a warrant for all my electronic devices. This included, you know, personal devices, my work devices, which at the time were the property of the U.S. Senate. And this included devices that, you know, I had hadn't used in years, an external hard drive um, from my middle school, um, high school days that had nothing but MP3s. So it was incredibly invasive, um, so much personal content, you know, uh, content from uh, another litigation and, that I was and involved Jax, in. And Jax, we only have 30 seconds, um, and then we're going to do a post-show and put it online at democracynow.org. But when did you realize that Chelsea, uh, the so-called activist, had joined your group, uh, was actually an yeah. undercover police officer working for the FBI? Well, that's the funny thing. It was only through my court case that we had that kind of break in information because I refused to plead guilty to the crime of which I was accused. And as a result, the discovery revealed from the body cam of the officers talking amongst themselves that there were multiple undercover officers who had infiltrated us. And so I shared that with my co-defendants, my fellow organizers. And that was a huge break in the case for our understanding of just how how thoroughly our constitutional rights had been violated. Well, we're going to continue with part two of this discussion and post it at democracynow.org. We want to thank Jacqueline Armandares Enzueta, a Colorado Springs community organizer, a plaintiff in the new ACLU of Colorado lawsuit. And Trevor Aronson will continue with you as well. Award-winning investigative journalists will link to your new piece for The Intercept, Lawsuit Targets FBI Probe of Racial Justice Activists. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.